Hey, Nora. Hey, Sandy. What's up? What's going on? We got a snow day today, which is great, but it means that I got kids in my hair. <laughs> in your hair. Does that also mean kids uh, on your sound wave on this recording? <laughs> yeah, I think probably you might hear that. But uh, but otherwise, I mean, I love a good snow day, so I can't complain about that. How are you? I'm great. I'm uh, traveling. Uh, I have a very quick trip to Toronto and then back. For those of you who know me who are like, Sandy, you didn't tell us you were in Toronto. It's this trip is too short. So I couldn't, I couldn't um, connect with everybody, which is why I didn't tell anybody. But it is very, very nice to be home, despite the fact that the weather is all over the place, which Mm -hmm. I suppose is the most normal thing to say when you're north of the 49th. So here we are. Before we start, I want to mention an update from a story that we talked about last week. Um, So, Sandy, you remember these teenagers that were roughed up by the cops in Quebec City, and we didn't know much about what was happening when we recorded that last week. That's right. And the police have since been suspended, I read. So there's some interesting things that have come out from this case that I think are quite instructive for when we are reading about stories of police brutality. So the first thing that came out was that the five the five individuals who were caught on video being violent, they were all suspended with pay as per their collective agreement. Three of the same people were also caught on video roughing up someone else in another part of town that same night. Whoa. And then a month earlier, one of them was also caught up on video roughing up someone after a bar in a different part of town. Whoa. Yeah. You see, this is, man, all this lack of information that we generally get in Canada about the police and their history of violence with the public, like that is pretty essential information to have as members of the public generally, because we need to know, like, we should be able to hold these institutions to account to say, hey, if this is a fucking person who's doing this shit all the time, the fuck are they still doing there? This Mm. is unconscionable. Yeah. And so when he, when Pacific, the, 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 the kid who was beaten up when he was first caught on camera, the police couldn't say why they had arrested him. It was just left to, well, there was an incident inside the bar. Then the bar comes out and says, no, we never called the police. Uh, We don't know what the police are saying. And so there was this period of time where the only news that was filling the airwaves was how violent these police officers are as these videos kept on surfacing. And there was, I think, four Mm. investigations launched. Then a couple of days after all of this is in the news now for four or five days, it comes to light that someone who is around one of Pacific's friends who was there that evening had a warrant out for his arrest for sexual assault committed against a minor when he was also a minor, but he was older. And then all of a sudden the story became, oh, wait, sexual assault. Oh, this changes everything. And so there was a rally on Saturday and so many people, including people on the left, were like, Oh no, but the, this is the story's now changed. This is about sexual assault now. Even oh though my God. I, Oh my god. You know? <laughs> right? So, I wanted to raise this because a lot of of progressive people got caught in this really bizarre trap of 
being worried about condemning police brutality because now it's about sexual assault. There was no news about why they claim to be uh, uh, actioning this warrant randomly after a bar two years after the assault had happened. There was no news about then why still did Pacific get beaten or any explanation about like why that doesn't actually matter. Very few people remembered that, you know, the guy who did the mass shooting here, police didn't harm him at all. They didn't even catch him. They arrested a member of the mosque that night um, saying that he was the person to do it. And I I want left-wing people, progressive people to have their heads on straight when we're talking about police. These are all PR games. They're spinning the news to try and make it look as if it is justified to beat somebody, to, to beat for white cops to beat a black kid. And it is not justified ever under any circumstance. No, no, no. And bringing something else up in another in an, another unrelated issue uh, is completely bullshit, number one. And also, number two, we also need to recognize these moves because this move, this sexual assault move, it is one of the anti-Black moves. It is a common refrain to say this person deserved this treatment by the police. It, it's one of the most common uh, sexual assault. Another one is black on black violence, um, which of course you'll um, recognize. Another one is financial impropriety. Those are th- the three very common moves to say black people deserve the anti-blackness that we level against them. And we have to be critical enough to fucking understand when that's happening, what it means. It doesn't mean that, you know, uh, that uh, black people can't uh, commit sexual assault or when it happens, it's not something we should take seriously. But when it comes up in the context of this heinous event that never should have happened, we should understand what it is being used to do, how it is being employed to manipulate us, to forget about the atrocities that the police are laying on the bodies of black people. Fuck. That is so fucking annoying that people responded that way. Yeah. Now the, the, the rally was originally canceled and then the organizers uncanceled it and they had a really good statement explaining like how they understood the situation. Of course, it had a big impact on the turnout because people were scared off from attending or saw that it was canceled and didn't know it was uncanceled. But it still happened. There was still maybe 100 people there, which was great. And, you know, we got to keep uh, we got to keep fighting and moving forward and understand that every line that comes from the police, every thing that looks like they are trying to distract us from the main issue needs to be scrutinized. And we never should be assuming that they're telling the truth. Well, thank you for that update. I did not know that. <laughs> wow. That's there's nothing new under the sun. <laughs> no. All right. Well, uh, do we have anything to be grateful for? Yes. Yes. Um, this week, we have to say thank you to the following people who've donated for the first time or have changed their donations, specifically CHB, James, Devin, Jersey, and Ali. Thank you so much for your support and to everybody that listens and shares the podcast. Yes. Thank you. So this episode is not about Omicron. <laughs> Omicron. No, it's not. <laughs> this but you ep- know what? I'm feeling good. I'm feeling good about Omicron. I got to be honest with you. 
I, like, I know all of the journalists and the doctors are like, oh, we don't know, we don't know, we don't know. But there hasn't been mass death as a result of this. And so I'm going to take that on the balance sheet of being positive news. Yeah, I'm not, uh, I, I have no like value to ascribe to how I feel about Omicron. Like I have <laughs> zero value to uh, give to how I feel about COVID anymore. It is just regular life now. That's where I am. <laughs> and if, if another lockdown is announced today and I'm stuck in Canada, I'd be like, oh yeah, that tracks. Uh, if, <laughs> if, you know, I am told tomorrow that everything is being lifted and we're back to life as we knew it in 2019, circa October, I'd be like, yeah, that tracks too. Uh, but you're not world. <laughs> Something terrible is coming next. So, you know, it's, it's fine. Careening towards apocalypse quickly. It's fine. Everything's good. Like that's <laughs> how I feel. Super neutral. I feel like I should critique that. Fuck you, Nora. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So as we talked about last week, you know, like I went on a little bit of a mini rant at the ep- end of the episode last week for those of you who are weekly listeners and for those of you who aren't, why are you not weekly listeners? Um, <laughs> uh, at the end of the episode last week, I talked about how um, I've been noticing, I've been noticing, I've been noticing that we on the left seem to be really stuck in critique as activism. Ooh. And I'm really sick of it. I think critique is a part of what we have to do. But when we, when we start to think of activism as critique, as the only thing that we do, we really, 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 really limit ourselves and what we can do, the changes we can make to our world. And we start to lose sight of how critique itself should be strategic. And that is what we want to talk about this episode. Um, Because some critique is good and some critique is useless. (laughs) (laughs) And, And we should, we should recognize that, especially, especially when it is harming our movements. Hmm. Yeah, that is such a heavy topic. Um, As someone who basically critiques everything, um, I think about this a lot. And I think about where that line is between, you know, criticizing something in the hopes or in the expectation that it will get better versus criticizing something because that's all I've got (laughs) anymore. Um, especially because uh, when we look at how we live our lives, um, so much of it happens online. And activism tends to be a little bit more invisibilized. At least that's the case for me. I, I don't tend to write about the activism I'm doing. I certainly don't tend to tweet about it. And so the writing and the and the activism online tends to look like it's all critique. And that's got to probably, I think, maybe look a bit confusing to people from the outside. And so then I'm wondering, hmm, how much am I playing a role in creating this kind of world where all we do is critique and then we critique specifically on these platforms where we're trying to get attention? So I hope that you can untie some of this stuff for me because where the lines are are a little bit blurry because, I mean, critiquing the prime minister seems like, yeah, like all the time, all day, do it nonstop. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, and the same goes with for critiquing anyone with um, actual power within society, you know, CEOs or rich people or, or journalists or whatever. 
But then that question does definitely come up. Okay, so then how do we critique on the left in a way that is um, building towards something or that is hoping to correct the 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 collision course that we might think that the leftist movement might be on with something that's not great. And I'm then thinking about debates and how important having debate is and how difficult having debate is on these social media platforms. Yeah. And I, I mean, we've talked about the social media thing a little bit before, and this is that's related to this, which is that these social media platforms are created and um, are designed to drum up conflict. And so uh, critique can be constructive and critique can just be destructive uh, conflict circles that spiral into the pit of hell. And if you are not being strategic, both about how you critique and the medium you used to critique something, uh, then, you know, you can get caught in becoming someone who is perhaps unwittingly counter-organizing against folks who are just trying to do a thing. Um, and uh, ultimately making it harder for people to continue their activism. And so now, you know, we have an episode that I hope that this will serve as a good um, companion to where we talk about how critique and conflict is a good thing, a really good thing, and that people should use it as a gift. And I really um, hope that people can listen to that episode Again, when you listen to this episode, because they might seem conflictual, but they, these things go hand in hand. Um, but yes, I think that you are right. There's some critique that is like always warranted. You know, if, if we are against a system of exploitation, critique that system of exploitation at all times, <laughs> <laughs> all the time in any way that you can. Like it doesn't it doesn't, you know, Justin Trudeau. Good to go, <laughs> you know. Um, the system of colonization, fucking giver. Capitalism, take it down. But when your critique of capitalism starts to look like your critique of a new organization filled with youth who messed up on a thing that you think they need some support with, if it looks exactly the same, mm. think about that. <laughs> for a second. Think about that for a second. You know, people who are trying a thing, they should not be spoken to or interacted with in the same way from the left as the prime minister. Those are two different things. If you have something to teach or support or even debate with uh, a group of that you ultimately think is useful or could be useful, then your method of critique and your strategy for, should, for critique should reflect that. The problem with the way that uh, critique is happening um, is that because critique is easy, critique is really, really easy. It's one of the easiest things we can do on the left. Receiving critique is hard. Receiving critique and knowing what to do with it is hard. Receiving critique that's not constructive, that interacts with you as though you are a government, is like not only hard, it's irrational and doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so if you're receiving that all the time, I understand 
the the um, sort of impetus to want to just move away from the harder parts of activism because someone is just going to always be critiquing you. And in fact, to make your own activism just critique all the time because no one critiques the critiquers. <laughs> it's the <laughs> easiest it's the easiest part of activism. And then all of a sudden, because we're all watching each other through these prisms of social media to decide you know, who, who is, who's the realist, who's doing the best, who's the best thinkers, who's whatever, because that's what we seem to be really obsessed with on the left right now. Then the easiest thing that we can do, the thing that gets the most support, the most likes, because support looks like likes right now, the things that, that feel um, like you get the most positive feedback is critique. And then we're just all becoming critiquers. And that I think is such a loss. We have to be doing way more than critique is a part of the work that we do. And we have to understand that we are living in a capitalist uh, colonized space. And the, the way that we use that critique to operationalize the work that we do, again, is also going to be a strategic negotiation of what we have available to us. Right. So I think maybe it's helpful to think of some some examples of where this kind of thing happens. And it like looks very, very strange when you start to actually step back. Um, and so there's been, I'm actually not going to specifically talk of, about a movement that I've watched get critiqued unfairly. I don't actually have that in my mind right now. But I certainly have seen a tendency where there's a group of people, they come together, uh, let's say they're mostly young, and they make mistakes while they're organizing. They kind of s step in some traps that capitalism has set for them. And they call for something that's not, let's say, super radical, or that they don't fully understand the issue, but they're calling this action anyway. And there's two different ways that you can approach that group of people. Um, the, the first way is that you could like be in touch with them if you are an organizer that feels like you have some sort of, um, I don't know, uh, experience behind you and you want to help, you can be in touch and say, hey, just wondering if you want my help. And offering your help when you actually want to critique what someone's doing is a very good way uh, to not just be critical all the time. <laughs> it's a very good way to behind the scenes to tell people that what they're doing is 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 being recognized that that we can see what you're doing we can see that you're planning this this protest or this walkout or your demands or whatever and i have done that too and i want to help and then you do that quietly you do that offline you don't have to actually then say oh the students who walked out of school like they didn't demand i don't know whatever for that thing for that fee to be eliminated they're they're calling for something too weak or something like that um, or the other option is that you chirp about it online and that in doing so, um, I don't know, hope that there's enough pressure to convince organizers to change the direction and how they're doing things. If you look at people organizing something and you think that they're doing it wrong, you have to approach it like 
in a comradely way, which is not to to, to just announce that there's critique to be had about how th- things are happening unless it's warranted, unless you're going after like, I don't know, a multi-million dollar corporation that operates in leftist spaces or liberals who like to co-opt leftist causes and then try to make them liberal. Those are all locations where critique is warranted. But when it's just a bunch of people coming together to do something and let's say they make mistakes, criticizing them, like what is the point of that? It just creates toxic situations and oftentimes the person receiving that critique feels burned or feels unsupported or questions the whether or not they want to be involved in these spaces in the first place. And we have to remember that activism is like a very long road. And as you walk along that path, the way other activists treat you are going to influence how you radicalize. And if people get so critiqued and so burned at such a young part, and young, I don't mean young in terms of their physical age, but young in terms of their activism, it can really push people out quite immediately. And then the question becomes, what the fuck for? Why would we do that? And unfortunately, I think that this is actually really common. I think we see this a lot. Um, And sometimes it comes from organized tendencies. And I mean, you know, infighting on the left and factionalism is something that has existed for as long as the left has existed. And it's part of our rich history. And I actually don't totally oppose how factions interact with one another. But we can't get confused between people who are not fully politically formed and operating by the book of some political tendency and average people coming together and trying to do something and making mistakes along the way as they do it. Yeah, I I agree with that. And then there's this other element of the fact that if we're doing all of those critiques online, all of it is very public. And uh, for me, you know, I remember being critiqued as a being young in my activism, being critiqued and that critique um, being learning to receive that critique as a gift and it being very instrumental to my growth um, in coming to consciousness and the activism that I wanted to do. None of those mistakes of mine are online. (laughs) No one, no one can hear about an initiative that I'm doing. Look me up on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or whatever and see that in 2004, I said a thing or tried a thing which was critiqued in exactly this way and as a result will not work with me because um, something that I did had this critique leveled against it. But that is now the strategy that the critiquers are using, right? Like (laughs) there's, we use um, these social media platforms where these things stay forever. And someone who tries to do a walkout or something like that using perhaps some um, justifications or languages or whatever that, that might be a little bit suspect at the age of 17 who gets a critique, that that can be on the internet forever. That anyone can like look up attached to their name and say, aha, um, this person is not to be trusted because, because, because. And that is, I, again, like, what is the point in that? I very recently attended a something um, that, that <laughs> I, I'm just, you know, I don't want to um, say the name of what it is because I, then I would be doing the thing that I'm critiquing <laughs> myself. Um, <laughs> meta. Uh, and I, it it was something that was uh, created by young people, uh, and it the the structure of it um, has the potential to be very, 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 very useful. Um, and 
the execution had a lot of issues. And, you know, at that point, everyone who's there has a choice. Like, if they recognize that, they could go online and be like, you fuck this, like this, and here's all the reasons why, or recognize that this is an imperfect start, an imperfect um, uh, attempt to do something that could eventually be perfected. And then, so we have to ask ourselves, what do we want to do here? Do we want to destroy this thing um, or critique it online for like some, I don't know, gotcha points or whatever? I'm not really sure what that does. Or do you... Again, as you say, contact these people and say, can I help? Can I join? Is one way. Or another way is to just, you know, try to have a conversation. And I think one of the things that um, is the best ways that we can help support the growth of other activists is ask questions. Ask the people questions about how they thought about the thing that they created and see if you can, um, one, come to them with the sort of respect of like, you are a, a, a human who thought about this. So maybe, maybe there is a purpose behind how you, how you did it. Maybe you're strategically using the system in a way that I didn't consider. Um, but, and asking that question helps to, to have that sort of re- respect between um, people who could potentially be comrades. But it also, in asking questions, allows for the other person who may be younger and not have the same sort of understanding to go through the sort of thought process and to see the thought process that helps you get to the point where you realize this thing deserves to be critiqued. And asking those people those questions helps them to develop the ability to ask those questions in their own lives as they're developing something themselves. While you were talking, I was thinking about all of the times that I've been in coalition meetings myself where we're having arguments or discussions or debates about different tactics that we we should take that I fundamentally disagree with. A lot of the work that I do right now has a lot of different kinds of people in the room and it's different kinds of people with political orientations that... I think are a dead end (laughs) that are not going to bring the kind of change to society that we need, but the kind of work that I'm doing, it doesn't matter then that it's a, it's a big tent kind of group and it doesn't matter the political orientation of someone they're there because they want to be there. And so it means that we have a lot of very difficult discussions internally about what the best way forward might be. Um, and the, and a most recent example of this, I mean, it's not that recent, so I'll talk about it. Um, but we were organizing a March, um, uh, it, last winter, I think. And I don't remember what it was specifically over, if it was specifically about racism or if it was, it was specifically about racism within like City Hall or whatever. And we had a very big argument over whether or not to march by police headquarters. And by then, obviously, globally, there had been an attention on racist police violence, but there hadn't been any specific incidences like we saw last week. There hadn't been any incidences where we saw racist police violence uh, happening within the Quebec City Police Force. And so there was a very interesting discussion that happened and debate that happened between people that absolutely wanted to see the police included in this because obviously it's a racist institution. And there was people that had not really put together those, um, those issues. They hadn't really made the connection yet. 
And the room, and it was like not a real room because <laughs> it was online, but the room was full of different kinds of people from different kinds of, of political backgrounds. And those of us who were more radical were able to argue why we needed to go by police headquarters. And eventually that became the consensus. But it took a lot of hard work. Now, if your coalition doesn't have a lot of people in it to have those kinds of discussions, it's really easy to make the wrong call or to make a call that from the outside looks very bizarre or reactionary or isn't going to cut through the kind of um, right wing bullshit that we need our movements to cut through right now. But you know, knowing what things like that look like on the inside and also knowing that sometimes when you have a group of people that are all on the same page, they don't have the debates about, whoa, maybe we're not thinking about this or maybe we're not thinking about that. And then all of a sudden this and that becomes the issue because no one in the room had thought about it or had any experience with it. it you know, how we organize is so dependent on who is at the table that when we look from the outside and we just do blanket condemnations or blanket critiques, we, first of all, like it makes it very hard for, for us to create a space where people can change their mind because then all of a sudden positions get dug in and it's us versus them. And that becomes really, really hard. But then the second thing is that it also stops us from being able to uh, appreciate just how things spontaneously happen right now, thanks to the internet and how that's, you know, while that's not, it's not the way to organize, right? That's, I, I, I think it's, we can call that ad hoc organizing, right? A spark happens and one person or five people come together and they're like, we're going to do this. We're going to have a rally. And that is, that happens right now because movements are so weak and because there aren't movements that are ready to say, okay, we, we see this happening. Mobilization is going to happen in five days because the, there's just not these groups to do that. And so it puts a tremendous amount of pressure onto what is effectively random people, people who care about an issue who might not have any organizing experience behind them, or maybe they have a little bit of organizing experience behind them, but, but, but they could be literally anybody. Um, and then we expect that they've thought through all of these issues as if it's even a reasonable thing for us to expect, rather than saying, okay, here's an opportunity. Here are five or two or 10 really exciting activists who have never done this before in their lives. How can we help them? How can we t like show them what has already existed? Because part of all of this is what, Sandy, you keep saying, that we live in this moment where there's no history. And everybody, it seems like there's action after action, unless it's like organized by the really longtime hardcore radicals. Action after action seems to exist as if there's no history as if there's nothing that's come before it. And so it's like, okay, even if we had a big rally of 3,000 people last year, we're going to just do it all again. And we're going to do it all again from scratch because we we don't have a history of of moving something along because there's no structures anywhere or almost anywhere. Of course, there's, there's, there's obviously some really great work going on that is structured. But by and large, it's these, these ad hoc moments that people are called to action and they take action. And then there's nothing there to hold them to make sure that they're avoiding pitfalls or avoiding mistakes or able to respond to the critics that will happen because the criticism that is that is going to happen is going to be from the right. And so if we're also inserting a criticism from the left, we have to be very fucking careful about how we're doing that. And we have to use that judiciously and only in moments where an organization should have known better, has the capacity to do better, or is taking up space that actually is damaging the left, which is not going to be a group of 
new activists just trying to do something good? I think it is, again, uh, the easy way out to uh, critique uh, in terms of what you're saying right now, like the mobilizate, the ad hoc organizing, that stuff's all, you know, really um, visible and attractive to the type of media consumption and social media consumption that we are all doing today. The critique is also really simple and uh, attractive to the sort of media consumption that we are all doing today. The hard thing and the riskier thing is to organize support for the people who need to improve their political consciousness, to improve um, their principle development, to improve their strategy. Like, if you are someone who's like knee-jerk, want to critique a thing, well, why don't you organize support for the people who need it? Organize um, an education system for them, like a, a way to um, create some political education for those folks. That is a, a form of operationalizing your critique. Operationalize your fucking critique. Just saying some words, what does that do? It doesn't do anything. It just, you know, maybe potentially get some likes. But if you if you're serious about your critique, create create some political education for those folks. Like put some work into what you're doing. There is no risk behind um, uh, certain forms of critique and there's, there's no weight behind it. There's no usefulness behind a lot of the ways that we are using critique right now. But if you have the critique in your head, think a little farther about what you can do with it besides just throwing it out in the same manner that you would against the government. We can't treat ourselves like we treat the system. Otherwise, perhaps we don't believe that we're all needed for for this sort of um, uh, resistance and fight back that we need to to lay against a system that is all pervasive and destroying us. And I I I can't have that sort of a political orientation that none of us are needed and that everything is worth throwing away. Like that's uh, extremely nihilist. And if we don't believe that, then why don't we operationalize our critique in a way that really matters? It's hard. Like activism should be hard. Like nothing about activism is easy because we're fighting against a system that has literally uh, created power structures that in which our only um, method to struggle against it is to unite with one another and to struggle through any conflicts that we might have in order to reach a common goal. And a critique is like the, the least, the least of the ways that we can, um, can do any sort of uh, fight back on the left. Like the building, that work, that risky, hard work, we need more of us doing that. That should be the thing that we turn to. If we are going to have like a, a knee-jerk reaction, if if we're going to um, habitualize a certain type of reaction um, to a an action that we don't like or an action that we see could have been done better or some sort of formation uh, of activism that we we see could be better then then let's habitualize um putting our critique into action doing something about supporting the folks who really need it hmm i think it's also worthwhile to talk about like the left in Canada and where critique is absolutely critical all the time. <laughs> 
And and that's where, like, when you look at the left, it's hard to ignore the NDP and it's hard to ignore labor because these are both large political establishments that have money, that have resources, and that take up a lot of space on the left. I'm sure you've seen, Sandy, in the past couple of weeks, there's a groundswell of criticism towards different instances of the NDP, whether it's because, well, the actual NDP is sending in the RCMP at Wet'suwet'en, or it's the NDP that's not condemning that, regardless of the province or the federal instance, whichever one we're talking about. Or if it's a folks in Scarborough, I forget which riding, if it's Scarborough Southwest or Scarborough Center, but, you know, fighting the party establishment to have a proper nomination campaign and a proper nomination process so that someone from the grassroots can be nominated to run for that seat. I think that, you know, when we're criticizing these large institutional centers of power on the left, and of course, relative to the liberals and conservatives, these are not powerful institutions, but they certainly are powerful on the left. I think that that is, you know, that's the line. Like, how institutional is the work that someone is doing? And are we punching up or are we punching down when we're critiquing? And the other thing, too, is I think that, you know, there, what we all what we really do lack, like while there's a ton of, of, of Twitter critique or social media critique that's short, there really isn't enough long form critique. And I say this as someone who's always trying to write long form critique, like actual articles that are trying to dive into things in a, in, a, in a way that you can understand my logic, you can understand where I'm coming from, and you can understand why I'm saying what I'm saying. So that it isn't just like, you know, f- fuck you, Andrew Horvath, although I have no problem saying that. But you can then go through the logic of why I'm saying that. You know, if you are someone that wants to critique all the time, all the time, all the time, The best way to do that is in something that's a longer form critique because it allows people to at least walk through the process of what you're thinking. And then people can decide for themselves if if your critique is fair or if it's unfair. But the urge to just throw out, you know, 280 character critiques, that's pretty difficult to do anything profound in a tweet or even in a tweet thread, although a thread is already better than a single tweet. (laughs) Um, And so that long form, like really trying to actually grapple with things is, I think, really, really important. And it also gives you the time and the sobriety necessary to say, wait, am I like going after the wrong culprit here? Um, And, you know, maybe once you get to like word 500 can go, ooh, no, this is this is just actually coming across as petty. (laughs) I'm going to change the way that I'm writing this. But there isn't enough left-wing long-form critique. Um, there's only a handful of us that that write these kinds of things. And the handful of us really, like, you know, spread the gamut of the of left-wing thought in Canada. And so you can kind of assume, like, right off the bat where we're going to say before we say it because of where we position ourselves but we definitely need more of that and we need more of, of people thinking deeply about things and doing so in a way that is not punching down uh, on new organizers who are making mistakes as they go along. Yeah, it also means that we need to be consuming critiques in more places than just uh, Twitter. And also, I'm, I'm going to say it like just from like people from the academy, you know, like I think it we yeah. there is a critical uh, reading material um, across uh you know, this place that we can, um, consume, whether it's, you know, Briar Patch, uh, for example, or the monitor that runs a gamut of uh, like a range of different types of topics, uh, upping the ante, you know, there's a whole bunch of different 
types of publications that, again, are, are really hard to put together that people have created over the years to give us a space to have left-wing critique that is more long-form. And I don't know how many of us are actually doing the work of uh, engaging with, with those sorts of things, because those are sites of debate that are not you know, connected to a large company trying to make a bunch of money off of conflict. Like these sites of uh, critical writing are designed to support um, debate, but another way of debating, another kind of debate that we have with one another uh, in the world. And um, another thing that I just want to be clear about is that none of us have this figured out. Okay, <laughs> none of us, none of us have this whole like how we how we remake the world thing figured out. Because if we did, we'd do it. Um, <laughs> so the critique is necessary. Um, but it's also necessary to try a thing. And if we're all becoming too afraid to try a thing because the critique is just so so much easier, it just <laughs> means we'll never get to the thing that we need to, to the, the thing that we need to actually do to remake the world. And yeah, I really I want I, I'm hoping that folks can uh, do some more reading and some of the harder work of of engaging. I also want to talk about the Academy just a little bit. Um, you know, I think it, it's like super great to have a job um, where your purpose is critique. That, <laughs> that is sounds, the job of amazing. an academic. It's awesome. What's that? That sounds amazing. <laughs> it is. It, so, it sounds fucking great to just search for things to critique and then to critique them and to critique them well and to have a lot of time to think through something and critique something really really well we also need to be oh god Nora but we always also need to be critical <laughs> of, <laughs> of the way that the the way that the academy supports critique and the way that the academy doesn't support critique and what sorts of critique gets supported and what doesn't get supported and and the idea that um you know, be being in the academy is one of like the safest places you can be on the left. You know, it's it's one of the, uh, if, especially if you're not like a sessional. I'm not talking about y'all, okay? Um, but if you if you have like a tenure track position and you are able to do uh, critique, but you're not doing other things, you're not doing some of the harder work. It's like the safest perch from which you can. Uh, critique. And so some of that critique is going to be really good and useful and strategic. And some of it might not be. Some of it might look like a Twitter critique. And we have to think about the ways that the academy can be a site of uh, where people can create ruptures in the system. But it's also a, a site of subjugation. It is also a site of exploitation. It is also um, a site where uh, capitalism is like, you know, destroying anything good about um, the academy. You have to think about how that might be influencing critique and the critiquers and how the critique comes across. Yeah, I, I think it's it is really important to think of the role that the academy plays in all of this, because oftentimes the critiques that 
that left-wing professors make are actually not even accessible to average people. And it's not the fault of the professors. I mean, that's just the way that academic publishing works. Um, and it becomes unaccessible because, you know, sometimes you have to pay for the article or you need to have a library subscription or membership or whatever. Or sometimes it's not accessible because they're actually debating uh, debates that are just like not on your radar. And so to even understand the critique, you need to read a lot. And that that creates this weird other location where left-wing discussion happens that is really, I think, away from average people. Um, and I say this as someone who, I mean, I'm, I've got, I'm very close to the academy. I, I can access um, articles if I <laughs> send them to people to download them for me, which I do all the time. But I still feel very much like that's a world that I do not understand or get or have any access to or can even really touch like it's very nebulous and so yeah if you're a professor uh, of social movements or of left-wing thought you know you've got to be thinking of ways to popularize your critiques and to also make it um i think making making critique accessible so not just your own critique but how to critique in good faith and not punching down and not using a platform to just be mad about a bunch of uh, I don't know, new activists making mistakes. Um, how do we how do we democratize democratize these skills and make sure that you don't have to be in these positions of relative privilege to be able to 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 deconstruct something or to feel like you are worthy enough to deconstruct something? That's 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 I think the most important thing with critique is you know get get the deepest critiques you have off of social media. You know, pick up a, a phone or a Zoom or show up at a meeting or shoot people private messages. I think that that's really critical. But then also for those of us um, who are in the business of critique to help people understand how to do an effective critique, because as much as this episode is, criti- is cr- criticizing critique, I, th- I do think that it's a fundamental part of the left and doing it in a way that is in good faith, that is accessible, and that seeks to improve people rather than dispose of them is a skill that we all need to learn and we all need to develop um, regardless of where we're at. And so finding ways to teach that skill to other people, I think, is also really, really important. The other thing is just that just know that you can like critique anything. <laughs> you really can critique anything. Like I can sit here on um, this side of the mic and critique everything that Nora is doing right now if I wanted to. Like it's, critique is easy. Like, uh, and, you know, like for example, I can say, Nora, what kind of machine are you using right now? You know, I'm using a Mac. To do this. You're using a Mac, <laughs> huh? You're using a fucking Mac. I can critique the fuck out of how she is engaging with the, the technology that she is using in order to speak to me and how that is not helpful and blah, 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 blah. She knows this stuff, okay? <laughs> but in, in the critique, the critique is helping us to understand um, how our world is made up and so on. And we have to be strategic about... Um, the contradictions that we live in in order to effectuate the strategies that we need to strategize through on the ground. I mean, there's there's a way that sometimes critique also gets leveled to be, to create this sort of like pure h- human, as though there should be this pure human who engages in activism on the left, which is not possible. It's just not possible. And you can critique everything and make someone feel really terrible about the way that they're engaging for no reason. Nora should know about Mac 
and and how she is using her Mac, and I should know about how I am using my Mac or whatever. Um, and we should be consciously understanding how that is a contradiction in our lives and consciously understanding and making the decision uh, about uh, our strategic use of that sort of machine. That is also a part of the work that we have to do on the left that I think is quite hard, quite risky, and very necessary. That gets lost in the critique and the critique of the critique and the critiquers and all of that. Those contradictions and the understanding of how we negotiate our lives and strategy and action through those contradictions is very, very important. Mm-hmm.